Good morning. Are you well? Yes, sort of, some of you. <coughs> Excuse me. This is uh, week six, I believe, week six, yes, thereabouts, um, of our series Big Questions. Um, and it's a series looking at some of the more challenging questions that we may have about life, faith, the universe. Um, we've got about two weeks left to go. Um, apologies if we haven't yet got to your question. Hopefully we will in the next couple of weeks. Obviously we won't have time for every single question. We won't be looking at why toast lands butter side down. Um, <coughs> but we're going to do our best uh, to squeeze in a few more before the end. Um, today's big question is this. Why bother with church? Well, you're all here today, so hopefully you've got your own reasons. Um, but I'm really pleased that we're going to deal with this question as a part of this series. Um, I'm not entirely sure that I'm pleased that I'm the one that's dealing with it. Um, I'll let you know at the end of the morning. Um, but I'm pleased that we've got it in here, we've got it in the series, because I think that this is the sort of question that most of us here will have asked at one time or another. And if you've got children, then there's a good chance you've had to answer this question as well, um, I would imagine, more than once. But why bother with church? And I don't think it matters so much whether you've been uh, a Christian for a really, really long time, or whether you've been uh, a Christian for a short time, or whether you're not a Christian at all. I think there are many different ways in which we come to ask this question. For some here this morning, you might come to this question because church has become a bit tiresome, a bit weary, and perhaps even burdensome, and it's just something else that you feel you have to fit into an already busy week. You're no longer sure that it's worth the time and energy. For others, it might be the case that church has just become a little bit too complicated. Maybe there's a relationship that's been damaged or there's a situation that you're not sure how to handle and it's just not as easy as it used to be, so you're looking for a way out. Perhaps church isn't living up to your expectations anymore. Maybe the, the worship's not quite as good as you'd like or the sermons are just a bit too boring or there's not enough biscuits with the tea at the end of the service. Um, actually, that's the youth's fault, so I'll... I'll apologise on, on their behalf. Um, <clears throat> there's always a lot put out, put it that way. Or maybe this morning you're just not sure where you fit. You sort of feel like maybe you're a face in the crowd and you're, you're not sure what purpose church has in your life anymore. If you don't have a faith, maybe there's a different way that you've arrived at that question of why bother with church. Maybe you see church as a an antiquated institution, sort of out of step with society, spouting doctrine which incites hatred and intolerance. Or maybe um, you're aware of the church's long and sometimes violent history and the, the times when the church has been involved in acts of injustice in the world. And you're just wondering, well, how can a place that claims to believe in a God of love be involved in such atrocities, such evil. Or perhaps for you this morning it's much, much more personal. Maybe there's been real 
damage done. Maybe you've been really hurt by church in the past, or you've been hurt by those that belong to a church, those that claim to be followers of God. And because of what they did to you, you wonder, well, how can there be any worth in coming to church if that's how people behave? And if that's you this morning, then I would start just by saying, well done for getting through the doors. Because it's hard when you've had that sort of hurt in your past. Brennan Manning famously said that the the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. And that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I think he's on to something. You know, there's enough in the press and the media about church to convince us that perhaps it isn't worth a second look. Isn't there? So why should we bother? I'm even more unsure I want to answer this question now. I've just made it harder for myself, haven't I? Why should we bother? Well, I think to answer that question, it's important that we understand what church is. And it's important that we understand what church isn't. We need to have um, a right view in our own minds of what we're talking about when we say church. What we really mean. So let's start with a few things that church is not. The church is not unique in its violence and hypocrisy. This might seem like an obvious sort of statement, but I think it's an important one, especially if this is some of the reason that you've rejected church in the past, or you know people that reject church for these reasons. Often it's said that the church is full of hypocrites. But if your definition of hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another, then All of us have done that in some way or another through our lives, haven't we? We're just coming to the end of a a hugely uh, politically charged year and we've seen many politicians throughout the year say one thing and do another, haven't we? And it seems like this is all around us, everywhere we go. And likewise, the church is often criticised for being the source of hatred or, or violence in the world. And while it absolutely exists in church history, you think of the Crusades or um, the African slave trade, for example, we've hardly cornered the market. There are many, many other acts of violence which have committed without any religion of, of any sort. You know, the, the communist Russian and the Chinese and Cambodian regimes of the 20th century, they swore off organised religion and God and still manage to commit acts of horrendous violence against their own people. So perhaps the issue with these two things isn't so much the church, but maybe it's people. Maybe it's human nature. Maybe we are fundamentally flawed and damaged. Fair enough. But shouldn't the church be better? Shouldn't the people of God be able to rise above the rest of the world to stand tall, free from the lies and hatred that we see around us? Well, yes and no. My second point is that the church is not full of perfect people. (laughs) Actually, it's worth saying, first of all, that the church is not always full of genuine Christians. 
As controversial a statement as that may be, just because somebody claims to be a Christian doesn't mean that they're following the ways of Jesus. It doesn't mean that they're living their life according to his teaching. It can be hard on a Sunday morning to tell us apart, but if you meet some people in the week, it's a different story. And I'm talking about the church in general. I'm not talking about this church specifically, um, unless you're feeling guilty. But it's an important point because there are most certainly a number of people who give the church a bad name. But they don't represent everyone. You know, some people turn up to football matches not because they love the sport or want to support their team, but because they want to cause trouble. They want to start a fight. That's what they're in it for. And you wouldn't conclude from their behaviour that football is bad or that there are no genuine fans at the match, would you? And it's the same with church. There are many, many people with a genuine love for God that want to live rightly, but there are a few who don't. I bet you never thought you'd hear me use a sports metaphor, would you? <laughs> what about the rest of us? What about the genuine Christians? Those of us um, who, here who, who want to live for Jesus. Shouldn't we be better than the people in the world? Well, actually, no. See, just as the church doesn't have a monopoly on violence and hypocrisy, we don't have a monopoly on doing good either. It's not to say the church doesn't do a lot of good. It absolutely does. But it's not the source of good in the world. James um, chapter 1, verse 17 reads that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. You see, God alone is the source of goodness, not the church. And actually, you know, the Bible, it talks a lot about the seriously flawed nature of real Christians. Even the, the heroes of our faith, the ones we hold in high regard, were not perfect people. I realize it's misleading as they're sometimes referred to as saints, but they all had their issues. And the central message of the Bible is that we can only have a relationship with God through sheer grace because none of us are good enough if the church was responsible for creating perfect people then there would be no need for Jesus would there but we do need Jesus we never stop needing Jesus because we're sinful and flawed and full of hypocrisy and violence but it doesn't mean that we aren't getting better the point of being a follower of Jesus is to become more like him. But it's a gradual process. It's a process that takes our entire lives. And the point of the church is to help us on that journey. To encourage us to be better. To keep us from slipping up. As the writer to the Hebrews puts it, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. This is church. You know, the reality of the church is that it's filled with immature, broken people who still have a long way to go. And I, I absolutely include myself in that statement. All of us. But we can encourage each other. We can do better together. You know, Jesus said, I will build my church. And I think he uses the word build because the church is a work in progress. 
I'm getting really excited about the new Aldi opening on, on Glasgow Road. This is more like my metaphor, isn't it? And every, um, you know, it's going to be great that I won't have to go into town for all of my um, meat, chainsaw and German beer needs. I can just head up the road and, um, you know, every morning and evening as I'm driving into work, I slow the car and have a little peep out to see what progress has been made. You know, is the glass in? Is the car parked down? And it's not quite there yet, but there's progress. It's in the process of being built. And you know, we don't always know the journey which someone who's a part of the church has been on. We don't know how far they've come. We don't know how much work Jesus has already done. You know, you might come to church and you encounter someone who perhaps gets angry really easily. And you think, well, well, church isn't working for them. Why would it work for me? But you don't know. You don't know that that person was maybe abused as a child. You don't know that maybe they've spent time in prison for violent crimes and that Jesus has brought him so far on the journey that the church has helped them get so far, but there's still a way to go. As someone once said, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. So if the church isn't supposed to be perfect, then what is it supposed to be? Let's just look at a few things um, that the church is. There are a number of different ways in which the Bible describes the church, and I just want to share a few of them this morning. Firstly, the church is described as the bride of Christ. I don't know about you, but that statement's always made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's my innate masculinity uh, (laughs) rebelling against the word bride. Or maybe it's the romantic connotations that sort of come with it with a marriage. It's like that, um, the worship song that goes, um, heaven meets earth with a, with a sloppy wet kiss. Ooh. No thanks, I'm out. That's not for me. Um, <coughs> but I think this idea of church being the bride of Christ, it goes much deeper than romantic feelings. Actually, I think it has very little to do with the romantic feeling. Paul uses the analogy in his letter to the Ephesians, and on the one hand, he seems to be talking about marital relationships. He seems to be offering advice to, to husbands and wives on how they should treat each other. But he keeps bringing back to this idea of Christ and the church. Um, and Ephesians 5.25 reads, Husband, love your wives just as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And then later in verse 28, it says, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated their own body, but fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does for the church. And the sense you get from reading this passage is that Christ is is wholly committed to his church. For better or worse, for richer or poorer, sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Except that Christ has defeated death. (laughs) So this is forever. And God is wholly committed to his church. I mean, let's be honest. If we look through church history, there are many times where God would have been well within his rights to divorce his church. Just to get out, to walk away. No one would have judged him. But he doesn't. Instead, he calls it back. And he redeems it time and time again. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a book um, called Hosea, and it's, uh, uh, it's about the prophet Hosea. And God uses Hosea's life as an example 
um, of his love for his people. And Hosea marries uh, a girl called um, Gomer, who's a prostitute. And she, he has a couple of children with her. And um, after time, she leaves and she sleeps with other men and she cheats on him. But Hosea loves her anyway. He calls her back to his home and he restores her. He remains faithful even when she does not. And if God is this committed to his church, then we need to be as well. Another idea we find in the Bible is this idea of family. The church is a family. In the words of Sister Sledge, we are family. No one? That reference is too old for me. I thought it would be... Oh, never mind. The Bible calls us children of God. We've been singing it this morning. Tim, thank you for, for bringing that song to us again. I just love the words. Um, 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. And his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, If we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Brothers and sisters, together, not just a group or a gathering or an institution or organization, but a family. A family that sometimes has to learn to bear with one another. To love each other despite our glaring imperfections. There's a real challenge in this. You know, no one has the perfect family, do they? Put your hand up if your family's perfect. You never argue, you never fight, you never complain. Jason, put your hand down. I've heard you complain. Be careful. A couple of weeks ago on the um, is it offensive to claim that Jesus is the only way um, to God question, I used the story of the prodigal son. Another example of family, um, a father and an estranged son. The son rebels against the father. He takes his inheritance and leaves and lives it up, lives how he wants. And later when things turn sour, he returns home to his family and his father runs to embrace him and restores him, puts a robe on his back, a ring on his finger kills the fattened calf and has a celebration for the whole family. And that's where I finished the story last time I spoke. But actually, it's not where Jesus finishes the story. Jesus tells us about another family member, the other son, the good one, the one that never left home in the first place, the older brother, who we imagine would be just as thrilled to see his younger brother as the father was. Not quite. Luke 15, verse 25 reads... Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and said to him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him safe and sound back home. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Hmm, it's not fair. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. And you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours, not brother, son of yours, has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fattened car for him. Imagine that. Siblings becoming jealous and angry one another. We can't relate to that, can we? None of us. 
You know, something I'd never noticed about this story until I was looking again this week. As much as the father runs to greet the wayward son, he also comes out after the brother to plead with him. Verse 31, it says, My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. And I think we like to identify with the wayward son in that story sometimes. But maybe sometimes we're the older brother that needs to be reminded about our father's love and guidance as well. Colossians 3 reads, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against the other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them to all together in perfect unity. Family can be hard, can't it? But we need to stick together. We need to bear with one another. We need to forgive one another, and we need to do our best to love one another. And when we struggle, we can lean on our Heavenly Father for guidance and help. Finally, um, the church, and perhaps this is Paul's favourite illustration, is a body. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And then in verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you has, um, is a part of it. We are better together. Each is different, each personality. We all have different skills and abilities and gifts um, and haircuts. But we've all been brought together with one purpose. To communicate God's message of love to the world. And you know, how how we do that is up to us. That's one of the amazing things, I think, about the local church. Is the fact that we, as people that live in this area and gather in this area, are aware of the needs of our community. You know, Steve this morning has shared with us about a need in our community. The need to find shelter for those homeless in the town that have nowhere else to go in the coldest winter months. That is a method that we as a church are using to communicate God's love to them. Along with the, the many other things that we do in the week. When Jesus came on earth, he said that the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then he went around proclaiming the good news by healing the sick, caring for the poor, setting people free, loving the least, the lost, and the lonely. And then when his time on earth was over, he told his disciples, Go. Go and do the same. Make more disciples. Do what we've been doing. Continue the work. And I think sometimes the church has become known more for what it's against than what it's for. The church is against homosexuals, the church is against women, the church is against people thinking for themselves. It's a, it's a religious institution, it's out of step with society, but God doesn't want a church which removes itself from society. He wants one that engages with its deepest needs. I was speeding up, let me read that again. God doesn't want a church which removes itself from society, but one that engages with its deepest needs. Isaiah 58, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah and he's talking to the people and he's tackling their religiosity, their religious practices and their their fasting. And this is what he says to them. Is not 
The kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor and the wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? This is the kind of church that God wants us to be a part of. As the body of Christ, it's our responsibility to continue the work of bringing about the kingdom of God on earth. To go to the least, the lost and the lonely. To stand up for injustice. To care for the poor and the sick and to be light in the darkness. To be the good news. All of us, together. Timothy Keller writes, Self-righteous religion is always marked by insensitivity to issues of social justice, while true faith is marked by a profound concern for the poor and the marginalised. You know, I've already admitted this morning that the church has had its problems in the past, but it would be unfair and unbalanced not to talk about the fact that the church has also changed the face of society. In many, many, many ways. Evangelical Christian William Wilberforce devoted his entire life to ending slavery in the West. Dying only three days before hearing that the act would be passing through Parliament. Baptist minister Martin Luther King Jr. was the leader of the African American Civil Rights Movement. He called white Christians to be more true to their own faith and he advanced civil rights through peaceful protests. Anglican Bishop Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu now, is famous for his Truth and Reconciliation Commissions after the apartheid in South Africa. He continues to be a great defender of human rights and today he's campaigned to fight HIV and AIDS, tuberculosis, poverty, racism, sexism, homophobia and transphobia. Catholic priest Jerzy Popolusko stood for freedom, democracy and human rights against the communist regime in Poland. And Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer returned to Germany during Hitler's rise to power. Despite speaking out against him, he refused to sign an oath of allegiance to the Nazis and he began a church for others who'd refused to sign. All of these people changed the face of society, all because God uses his church to make a difference in the world. To be the body of Christ and to bring about his kingdom. I don't know why God chooses to use us in this way. Other than perhaps that he delights in his creation. And he delights in seeing his creation fulfill their purpose. You know, it gives me great joy when I see my children working together. Achieving things together. Bearing with each other. And maybe it's because it's a rare occasion, but... (laughs) I think God feels the same. So why bother with church? Because although we are imperfect, hypocritical, jealous, occasionally violent, God is a committed lover who wants to see us grow and who wants to use us for great works in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your church, for the people that have gathered here in your name. Father, I pray that you would help us to fall in love with your church again.
for those of us who have perhaps lost the sense of what it's all about or what we're doing here, God, I pray that you would give us renewed passion for your church. I pray that you would make us people who make a difference in this world, a difference here in Tamworth, in this society and beyond. Father, that together we are better, we are stronger. God, for those of us to hear this morning that, that are having issues, family issues in this church, those that are not sure how to deal with situations or perhaps um, they're not sure how to deal with certain people, God, I pray that you would help us to forgive, to bear with each other in love. God, to not be like that older brother that refused to come into the house, but to lean on our Heavenly Father. God, we thank you for the difference the church has made in this world. And we pray, God, that we continue to be the hands and feet of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.